Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always pleasing in your sight. Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You might look at the readings today on this first Sunday of Lent and think that they are stories about uncomfortable constraint, difficult. Maybe you view Lent as just a time of constriction when you can't really do what you want to do. There's stuff you're supposed to do, there's stuff you're not supposed to do, and we face temptation, and often we fail. But what Jesus is doing in the wilderness is actually a creative act. He is recreating, which we will see in a minute. It turns out that we need constraint. This is a field of organizational psychology that's called constraint theory, and they do all kinds of studies about it. Um, God knows, and good bosses know, and parents know, that we need boundaries of constraint that actually help us to create and come up with innovative solutions and to feel safe and secure. Children, they did studies about children on a playground. If you put a fence around a playground, they will play over all of the equipment because they feel safe in there and they will explore, they'll go to the ends of their boundaries and they'll play with all of the equipment. If there is no fence, they will stay mostly around the middle and stay close together because it helps them feel more secure. Also, any creative problem solving team, like folks who create ads and advertisement, uh, there was one gaming software develop developer, he said, you know, if you tell a team, you, I want you to come up with this creative software advertising, and you give them no constraints, no boundaries, they all actually produce the same thing. And it's usually some version of that ad that you saw where it's like, the game comes out into the streets and they're all running through the city of New York playing the same game. They all come up with that exact same idea and that's what you have. If you want something new and creative and innovative, you have to say you can't do that, first of all, and I want it to kind of be like this. And then they start to brainstorm. And you don't want, right, to be exactly the same as everybody else. And I'm assuming you take on these practices and these constraints during Lent because you're hoping to be changed by the end of the season. You're wanting something new to be created. Given no constraints, the team of software designers and the marketers will produce just that giant game and no unique thing emerges. Now here's an example of a unique thing that began to emerge. This is back around 2011. It's probably because Maroon 5 came out with a song, but a game began to emerge. It was a meme that took over the internet. It was called the Moves Like Jagger Challenge, or Show Me Your Best Jagger. And how it worked was that wherever you were, whenever it was, no matter what you were doing or who you were in front of, if someone said to you, do your best Jagger, you had to do it, right? You know what that looks like, right? A little something, you have to do this? There's a lot of strutting involved. A lot of so there were people, there were, I mean, this meme took over the internet. There were people who, uh, medics that were deployed in Afghanistan, had to drop it and do their best Jagger at the, at the exact moment. There were pilots that were strutting through the airport because someone had said to them, do your best Jagger. There were even priests in procession that would drop what they were doing and do their best Jagger. <laughs> My husband didn't think I'd actually do that, but I did. 
You know, the, there were lots of reasons why that meme was so successful. First of all, it's fun to do. And because anybody could do it. It didn't matter where you were, what costume you're normally wearing, what the context was, everyone could easily identify what you were doing. They all knew that that was Mick Jagger that you were doing. You could be really bad at it. You could be a reluctant amateur in the subway. You could be a teacher goofing around with your class. As soon as you began to do those moves, people knew that they were in the presence of Sir Michael Philip Jagger. <laughs> How did he create such an on-stage presence that was so easily identifiable to anybody? And anybody, as soon as they saw it, they were like, Rolling Stones, that's what that's about. And the reason that came about was it was a constraint that was made beautiful. So Keith Richards, who is still with us today and will be <laughs> even after the coronavirus, he wrote in his autobiography, he said, Mick's flamboyant style came about because it's how they got started. When they first got started off, they had to work on very, very small venues. And by the time they set up all the equipment on the stage and the time they got the audience in, he had about the space of a tabletop in which to work. And because he was ambitious and he wanted to break out, he used that space to the best of his ability and it became a habit. It just became the way that he did his thing. So that even after they began playing stadiums, he still used those exact same moves. He learned to work it within the constraints and the confinement. It was the combination of his desire and that constraint that made something so wonderful. He used that constraint to make himself be more and people loved it so much that they began to follow in his footsteps and they wanted to display their moves like him. But don't worry, I'm not asking you to do your best, Jagger. Those aren't the moves that I want you to imitate. I want you to see the moves that Jesus is about to make and to imitate him instead. And we need to pay attention to those moves because these temptations that he faces are as old as the ages. I grew up Baptist, so I was taught that the devil is personified and he is real and that I'd better learn how to contend with him because just like in scripture where he is there at Genesis and he is there and defeated in Revelation, like I would be contending with him my entire life. And I learned things like uh, new level, new devil. You guys ever heard that phrase? That's a Baptist church lady way of conveying something that they had observed about the spiritual life. That as soon as you get ready to break loose. As soon as you get ready to go into the next phase, to get free of something, before that happens, you will have to face a great temptation. Something will come against you. And indeed, in our passage today, Jesus has just been baptized, and he's about to start his public ministry, and that the, then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So first, let's look at where Jesus learned these moves that he is about to make. These, aren't, these are very ancient and well-worn paths. In the ancient scriptural imagination, 40 was just a, like a, a shorthand way of saying a very long time. It was both a shorthand way of saying a very long time and a way of recalling other stories in Israel's sacred memory. The floods of the 40 days of rain, Moses' 40 days without food on Mount Sinai, Elijah's 40 days without food on Mount Horeb, Israel's 40 days in the wilderness, or 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and now we have Jesus's 40 days 
of fasting and wilderness temptation. And in Lent, that same 40-day pattern is extended to you. As you embark on your own wilderness journey, have you faced temptation this week? This is, I mean, this first week is easy because it's just from Wednesday when we started it, right? How you doing by the first Sunday of Lent? I have good news if you haven't done Lent before. Every Sunday is a feast day. We're always in Easter on a Sunday. So of the 40 days of Lent, Sundays don't count. So whatever it is that you gave up on Wednesday, you can have it today. Okay, and if you want to split hairs, you could, you know, because in the Jewish tradition, the day started the night before. So on Saturday night at sundown, when you can see a star in the sky, that's when you can have that thing, okay? <laughs> little insider tip. <laughs> so I wonder if you face temptation. I wonder if you find yourself in dark and isolation. I wonder what the voices are saying to you in Lent. To borrow language from a current day internet meme, how many years old were you? When you realize that Jesus' answers to the devil were Moses quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Were you this many years old when you learned that? (laughs) Yeah. It's actually two different stories that converge with Jesus in the desert. He's quoting Moses right after he gives the law to Israel. And he's hearkening back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they face temptation by the devil. And with both stories, Jesus is doing something. He is... The theological word here is recapitulating. He is recapitulating. He's going to go back and repeat what happened, but this time get it right. He is redeeming that story. So first, let's look at his retracing of Moses and Israel's story. When the devil tempts him to turn a stone into bread, Jesus' response is a quote from Deuteronomy 8. Moses had just given them, the Israel people, the law. And then he explains that these are not rules and punishments, They are a life-giving framework that God has given us about how to live a good life and live it well in community. And Moses tells them to remember that that God had provided for them all those 40 years in the wilderness by giving them manna from heaven. And he explains to them, God didn't lead you directly into the promised land because he wanted you to learn about himself. He wanted you to learn about the relationship that you have with him and that you need to be dependent on him every single day. You remember the rules of the manna, right? You couldn't store it. You were given enough for each day. He wanted to teach you that you could trust him and that you could depend on him to provide for your needs every single day. And it's after he explains that that Moses says, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's what Jesus says to the devil. He's getting at the fact that he knows exactly what the devil is trying to get him to do. And really what he's trying to get him to do is to not trust God. That's always the temptation. It's as old as the ages. It's the same every time. Jesus' three temptations and his answers to them are all really about trust. The devil whispers, you know, for nourishment, don't trust God. Trust yourself. For loving care, really, who do you trust? God? If so, throw yourself down off this tower and we'll see how many angels come to rescue you. And with your service or your worship, do you trust that to God? You should give that to me. These become three great questions that we can ask ourselves during Lent. Whom do you trust for your nourishment? Whom do you trust to love and care for you? And whom do you trust with your service or worship? Do you trust God really? Jesus in the wilderness also intersects with with the story of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Eden means delight. 
And truly, we have been kicked out or removed from our delight with God. It's really a story of trust versus mistrust. The serpent's fundamental move is to contend that God is untrustworthy. First, that God would dream of denying them food. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And second, that God has lied. Oh, you will not die. And finally, that God is actually humanity's rival. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and then you will be like him. What is primarily driving Adam and Eve's decision-making is anxiety and mistrust. They allow themselves to be drawn by the serpent into seeing God as their competitor and as seeing their lives not as in symbiotic relationship independent on God, but as separate and against God. They choose not to trust. The serpent convinced them that God wasn't to be trusted with provision or to be truthful or in relationship, but in the wilderness, Jesus is moving. With each dusty step that he walks, he's retracing that ancient path, the one worn by Moses, worn by the nation of Israel, worn by Adam and Eve when they left Eden, and worn by every spiritual pilgrim since, ever since the garden was closed to us. At this time, contending with the devil, Jesus wins, and he overcomes temptation, and he sets it right. Jesus is recapitulating. He's doing it over for us because he is the new Moses. He is the new Adam. And now his moves, which are obedience and trust, those moves become our righteousness if we enter them, if we copy his moves. Romans 5 says it best from our reading today. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many are made righteous. I don't want you to imitate the moves like Jagger, although it is fun, and I commend it to you. That gets you nothing but internet fame. But you can move like Jesus. And that gets you everything. We enter his trust and obedience. And you don't even have to do it exactly right for the world to know that that's who you're copying. And you don't have to get it exactly right for God to know that that's who you're following either. If you want a recreated life, imitate Jesus. Walk in his footsteps and learn to trust. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.